always appreciate your attendance and your attention and most of all your prayers and certainly covet those on a regular basis. Hope the Lord will answer those prayers this morning as we make this effort to speak to you. I'd like to take a look at a verse found in the book of Esther this morning. Esther chapter 4 and verse 14. In this verse we have a question in which a man by the name of Mordecai asks a woman by the name of Esther. says, Who knoweth for thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now Esther and Mordecai both are Jews living in the Persian Empire. The most powerful empire at that time and one of the most powerful empires that we have in history. How did Esther get to be the queen since she's a Jew? How did Mordecai get to hold the position he had, which was one of that of a high official, most likely a judge, because he dwelt there at the gate, and that's where all official business in cities of that day took place, at case at the gate. It's where cases were heard, etc., and most likely this is the position that Mordecai had. The book of Esther is an unusual book. It's not a long book. It has ten chapters in it. But it's one of two books in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. You would think there would be no book where that would be the case. But the other one is the Song of Solomon. But while the Song of Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes do not have the name of God recorded, I can assure you God and His works are very much evident as you read these two books. The book of Ecclesiastes the book of the Song of Solomon, the book of Lamentations, the book of Ruth, and the book of Esther are five books uh, that the Jews grouped together. And each of these five books is read at a certain feast or certain time of the year. It's called the five books of Megaleth. That literally means scrolls. And when they read the book of Esther, it's read at the time of the feast of Pur and Purim. It's a, a time that they remember in their history when God brought about a great deliverance. And when this book is read, when the name of Haman is read, they stomp their feet and they say, may the name of Haman be blotted out forever. Now hopefully you'll know why that's the case after we speak to you this morning. There's a great many verses in the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, that comes to my attention when I read the book uh, of Esther. I hope we can discover some of those as we take a look at it this morning. So before dealing with the verse under consideration, this question that Mordecai has asked Esther, now let's go back with just a little background here. At this time, the Persian Empire is the ruling and reigning empire. Prior to this was the Babylonian Empire, of which God allowed the king of Balaam to rise up and take the Jews into captivity as part of judgment. They had not allowed the land to lay out every seven years as they were supposed to. So for 490 years this took place, which meant they had, they had not allowed 70 years to be the land to have its rest. So God allowed them to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. God then raised up a heathen king by the name of uh, Cyrus that did good things. And Cyrus actually gave the freedom of the Jews to return back to the homeland, which many of them did, but also many of them did not. It's estimated there's about 15 million Jews dwelling in the Persian Empire at this particular time in many different areas. The Persian Empire covered more than two continents. It was indeed tremendous. We go back to chapter 1 of this book. It's about the king. We'll learn a lot about the king in the book of Esther. He was like most kings we read of in that day and age. He was lifted up with his pride. He was a man of power and a man of wealth. He liked to display that power and display that wealth and his authority. And the best way to do that was to have great feast. So it opens up in chapter 1 with three feasts. And the first feast that he has is for his military men and all the politicians. It was to, again, show them favor and also to display his great wealth and all that he had. This feast lasts for six months. <laughs> 180 days this feast lasts. And then there's a second feast that lasts for seven days when all the people were involved. And then there's a third feast, which is a feast just for the women that the queen at this time uh, put on. 
But it's at this third feast that the king makes an unusual request that he would not have made had he been sober. But the king has drank a lot of wine up to this point. The Bible says his heart was merry. It's just a nice way of saying he was really high. That's what it's saying. And he makes a request that the queen should come forth so that he could show off her great beauty. Now, he would have never made such a request as that, but the queen refuses. Again, he makes this request because he's under the influence of alcohol. When people are under the influence of alcohol, they say things and do things that most of the time they would not say or do. We have many warnings in the Bible about this. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Here's one of the verses in Proverbs. It says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived by there is not wise. It says, Wine or strong drink will deceive you. It'll make you think things that you shouldn't think, say things you shouldn't say, do things that you shouldn't do. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, in the opening verses, about verse 4, we find where it says, It's not for kings, old Emmanuel, it's not for kings to drink strong drink. For in so doing, they pervert the judgment of the law, or they forget the law, and they pervert it, and they pervert that which is associated with the afflicted. It says it's just not a good idea for kings and people in authority to drink strong drink. It'll pervert their judgment. It'll cause them to make bad decisions. In the New Testament, we're told in Ephesians 5 and 18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In Galatians 5 and 17, we have 17 works of the flesh. One of those 17 works of the flesh, along with adultery and fornication, lasciviousness, etc., etc., is drunkenness. Now, wine was a drink of the day. They didn't have coffee and tea and Pepsi and Coke in that day. The three principal drinks was wine and milk and water. If you go to Isaiah chapter 55, you, you find these three listed there. So, wine was one of the principal drinks, but it was not to control people. That's why you have one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for ministers and also for deacons, that they're not to be given to much wine. The Bible does not teach or as a commandment that we're to abstain from alcohol, but it's strongly suggested all the way through and gives warning after warning after warning about this. I've said many times in my life, if everybody who drank beer drank it because they enjoyed the first one they ever tasted, there'd be nobody drinking beer. That's just a fact. They begin to do it for peer pressure. They do it because it makes them feel cool. They do it because they don't want to be different. All these kind of things go into it, and they finally acquire a taste to it, to where then they really like it, really enjoy it, and then there's a great desire for it. It leads to much destruction. TV will portray it, social drinking, as part of a life of success. That, uh, you know, that just goes along with it. And I suppose from man's point of view, from man's perspective, what real success is in the world, that would probably be true. I could say a lot more about this. Somebody said, well, Brother Lawrence, don't you know the Lord Jesus Christ drank wine? Well, sure I do. I haven't been reading the Bible 40 sometimes for nothing. Of course I know it's true. But the same people who say that usually are not a model for service, worship, devotion, and ministry. I can tell you that. That's about the only thing they try to use Jesus as an example for. And the Lord Jesus Christ drank it at the communion table. He drank it, first of all, because it was part, uh, you know, the Passover supper. And we just took that and the unleavened bread and brought it over here and instituted the Lord's Supper. I can say a lot more about that, but we'll move on. Some years later, four years later, you're going to find where the king is really missing his queen. And they notice that. Those that are around him notice that. And they realize we need to try to help the king out. So they make a suggestion that they bring all the fair virgins of the land, the most beautiful virgins of the land, before the king. And over a period of time, he can interact with them and eventually select one of them to be the queen. And he agrees to that. There happens to be a Jewish woman by the name of Hadashi slash Esther, who is a Jewish lady that is chosen among all them. Now her Hebrew name means myrtle, like a myrtle tree. Her name, uh, her Persian name means star. 
It's kind of interesting that the myrtle tree puts off a flower that actually looks like a star. So she's chosen. The book of Ruth is a book that emphasizes romance. The book of Esther is a book that emphasizes the providence of God. Now, there's a lot of difference between the providence of God and the subject, we might say, of predestination. A lot of times people get them all crossed and intermingled, and uh, they're both biblical subjects, rightly divided, they harmonize and they fit together, but they're not the same. When it comes to predestination, that means the destination of the Lord's people has been predetermined, prearranged, and one day they'll all be in glory based upon what God has predetermined and predestinated. Romans 8, 29 and 30, But whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that might be the firstborn among many brethren. And of whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and when he called, then he also justified, and when he justified, then he also glorified. We know his predestination involves people and not things. It involves their destination, people that God foreknew. Ephesians 1 and 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children of Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will. And then we come to the 11th verse, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestinated according to him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Here's the four times in the Bible that the word predestinated or predestinate is used. We see it has to do with people and their destination and how they'll reach that destination one day based upon the counsel and the good pleasure of God. But the providence of God is a subject which God provides, and God is very active in the lives and affairs of his people here in this world. We certainly believe that God is very active in this. But there's a difference between the two. God is not the author of sin. God's not the author of confusion. God is not the author of all the evil that takes place in this world. But thank God, God can overrule. God can intervene and overrule. And God can bring good out of evil. God can bring good out of things that happen uh, to the Lord's people that's not good. Certainly he can do that. So we see the book of Esther is a book about God's providence. We see it early on here in the second chapter. Because three different times you're going to find where God brings Esther into favor with somebody. There's a man by the name of Hegai. I want you to remember that. Because it's the little people in, in the book of Esther that oftentimes get overlooked. Now there's a, there's a saying that big and large doors swing on small hinges. <laughs> Those are two big doors back there, entrance doors, four actually, uh, and they're very heavy, solid wood, very heavy, but it's small hinges on which they swing on, right? So oftentimes the Lord's people overlook the small things in the Bible, the little details in the Bible. They're there for a reason. Hey, guys, going to be in charge of uh, this thing that I was talking about a while ago. He's going to be in charge of all the women. He's going to be in charge of all the fair virgins, et cetera, et cetera. He's going to organize the whole thing. But there's one that obtains favor in his sight, and she gets preferential treatment. Her name is Esther. God brought her into favor and the kindness with him. As this procedure continues on, we'll find where she now comes into favor, or obtains favor, for all those that was around her. It expands now. And then finally, when it came her turn, we brought into the king. We find the Bible says that she obtained favor and kindness in the sight of the king. Now, that's an expression. If you go by and trace it, you'll find where God brought Daniel into favor with the prince of the eunuchs. God brought Joseph into favor with Potiphar. He brought Joseph in favor with the keeper of the prison. This simply means that we believe in divine intervention. That's one of the things I was wanting to you know, emphasize last Sunday to you. We believe in divine intervention. If not, then why do you pray? You know, I've mentioned this about three times now. Say the Lord's Prayer. When you say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, how can he do that if that's not divine intervention? I, I believe that God indeed does things to provide for us where if he did not, we would not have what we have. That's why we pray the kind of prayers we pray, such as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Another verse we discover in the book of Proverbs here in the book of Esther. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Do you believe that? That requires divine intervention, does it not? If he's going to direct your path, that requires divine intervention. And notice here how positive this is. What a statement of providence. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. 
Why? Because Isaiah 55, 10, 11 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far as my ways and my thoughts above your ways and your thoughts. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. Notice the word all. All your heart. All your ways. And what will be the result? And he shall direct thy path. I tell you, I, I believe God can direct my path better than anybody else. Can't, don't you? I believe God can direct my path better than I can. And better than anybody else can. Wow, it's good to get advice and counsel about you know, many things in life. And you should. If you go to the right source, just remember, ultimately, it's God that you're asking to direct your footsteps and guide you here in this world in which we live. He knows the past, present, and future, and we do not, but God does. So God brings her into favor. And so we find where she's selected now to be the new queen. Esther is the queen next to the king in the Persian Empire, a Jewish woman. But at this point, Mordecai, who is her uncle, well, actually her cousin, but he's taken her in because her mother and daddy had died, and he's taken her in, and he has raised her. He's raised her like a father. And he's instructed her that she's not to tell anybody that she's a Jew, and nobody knows she's a Jew. Nobody knows that Mordecai is a Jew at this point. Nobody knows. But chapter 3 opens up, and the characters brought to our attention. Then I want you to think about Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 about. Psalmist says, These six things that the Lord hate, and the seventh is an abomination unto his sight. And the very first thing that God hates is pride. When you look at these six things God hates, it, it deals with man's tongue, it deals with man's eyes, it deals with man's hands, and deals with man's feet and his actions. These six things that the Lord hate, a lying tongue is something God hates. Feet is swift to shed blood, something God hates. So in discord among the brethren, that's something God hates, not just dislikes and disapproves. He hates it. God does hate things. All right? What's the number one lesson I think is pride. You go and you read these things listed in Proverbs chapter 6, and you'll find all seven of them, you'll find them all in the life of a man by the name of Haman. All seven of them. There's nothing good to be said about this man. Nothing. And yet the king saw something in him that he thought was admirable, I suppose, so he promotes him. And he advances him. And he sets him above all the other people where he's got now great authority. We're going to learn a little bit later on he's a man of tremendous wealth. Maybe that's what the king saw in him. So the king promotes him. And he, when he walks by the gate... Everybody that's around the gate bows down to Haman except one man. The man's name is Mordecai. He will not bow down to him. The second of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Mordecai is a Jew. He's in exile. He's in the Persian Empire. But I believe Mordecai remembers some things about the God of heaven. And by the way, in this book of ten chapters, his name is recorded 58 times. Must have been a pretty important person. He was a very gifted person, a very talented person. And a man that God is going to use along with Esther. 58 times in 10 chapters. And his name's not mentioned in chapter 1 at all, so his name's mentioned 58 times in the last 9 chapters. Mordecai will not bow. There's another reason for this. Haman is an Agatite. That means he's a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. That's an important part of history. When Israel came out of the land of Egypt, when you come to Exodus chapter 17, you'll find the very first battle that they have is against the Amalekites. And after God blesses, you know, that was where you have Moses interceding, you have Joshua on one hand, down the valley as the commander of the army, you got Moses, you got Aaron, you got Hur. And God blesses, all of that there where they win the battle. And after it's all over with, God instructs Moses to write in a book. He records this. He writes it down that God will have war with the Amalekites from this generation forever. You go to the 25th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. 
And you'll read where God tells Moses, Moses tells the people, that God uh, is the enemy of the Amalekites because they attacked his people when they came out of the land of Egypt and they attacked them from the rear and they attacked the feeble and the faint, took advantage of those type of people in his army and God took personal offense to it. God says, I'll have war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. You come to 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll find where the king of Israel this time is Saul of Kish. He's the people's choice, if you remember, how he got to be king. And you'll find in this chapter where he's going to do battle against the Amalekites. And God tells him before the battle ever starts, he's going to bless him to win the battle. He said, win this battle, he says, you destroy everything. You destroy all the king and everybody. You bring back nobody alive. Destroy man and beast. Bring nothing back alive. God did what he said he would do as he always does. And Saul won the battle, but he brought back the king. He brought back the king. He brought back the best of the oxen, the best of the sheep. Remember when Samuel came on the scene, Saul says, well, I did what the Lord commanded. He said, well, if you did what the Lord commanded, why do I hear the lowing of the oxen and bleeding of the sheep? There's always evidence, my friends, when we don't do what God tells us to do. There's always plenty of evidence to display that. If Saul did what God had said, Haman wouldn't be around. But Haman is around. He's a descendant of that king. Mordecai, I most likely knew that. If he did, he certainly is not going to bow down to a man that God has said, I'm going to, they're going to be my enemies from generation to generation. I will make war with them. And Mordecai, I can't stand it. Everybody else is bowing down, but Mordecai, he will not do it. And this really, really infuriates Haman. He's angered by it. It says his wrath arose because of it. But he went on about his way. And he begins to come home and begins to boast and to brag about everything that's, that's happened to him. About the multitude of his riches and the multitude of his children. And how he has advanced him and promoted him, the king, and all of these kind of things. And so we find that Haman is a man that feeds upon pride. A man of great pride and ego. And his, his ambitious man. He wanted not only the power he had, but he wanted public recognition. He wanted public honor. He wanted whatever it all brings. Well, let's think about Proverbs 18, 13, which says, pride goeth before fall. Pride goeth before fall. And a haughty spirit before destruction. You're going to see that played out in the life of Haman. Now, Haman is so angry with Mordecai, and when Mordecai will not bow, the cat's out of the bag from the standpoint of why he will not uh, bow down because he now reveals that he's a Jew. Mordecai is so angry at, Mor- at uh, I mean, excuse me, Haman is so angry at Mordecai that his anger spreads not just from this one man personally, but it spreads to everybody that's a Jew in the Persian Empire at that time, which I've already told you is estimated to be about 15 million. So he begins to make a plan and a plot to exterminate them. Ever since God chose and formed the nation of Israel, going back to Genesis chapter 12, he found kings like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, Hitler, men in the Bible, men out of the Bible, who've had a great hatred for the Jewish people. And they've tried to destroy them. They're still here. They've gone to the funeral of all these men. They're still here. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 3. He said, I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. In the book of Jeremiah, the Lord said, if the sun uh, no longer shines, and the moon no longer shines, and the stars are not there, if if they're destroyed or whatever, then you can say that my people shall not be. But the point is this, the sun's still shining, the moon's still shining, the stars are still up there in the skies, and the Jewish people are still here. Big mistake to pick on the people that God formed and chose many, many centuries ago. Now, he begins a plot and a plan. And they begin to cast pur, which literally means a lot. Proverbs 16, 33 says, And the casting of the lot is in the lap, 
but the disposing thereof is of the Lord. Remember that. The casting of the lot is in the lap, but the disposing there is of the Lord. They begin to cast per, that is, slash lots. And they begin in the first month of the year, the month of Nisan. Interesting to me that that's the very month that Israel had been celebrating ever since they were delivered out of the land of Egypt. They've been celebrating that first month of Nisan. You know, Brother Lawrence, I, I'll go back there and read that. And uh, that's, a, that's a different month name back there. Well, it was. That was the name of the month at that time. And after the Babylonian captivity, that month was changed to Nisan. And so they start casting lots over a period of time at defeat of uh, Haman. And this goes on for a year. Now, again, it starts exactly in the same month. The month I was trying to think of was Abib. The month Abib. It corresponds to our March, April. The last month will correspond to our November, December. Later on, it's, it's actually 12, 12 months apart here. First month to the last month. So the very month that the Israelites are commanding God to celebrate the Passover, celebrate their exodus out, of, you know, exodus out of the land of Egypt, is the very same time that this plot, this plan, starts to materialize. So it's finally decided on the 13th day of the last month of the year, Adar, that there will be a decree of death that's to be executed upon all the Jews of that land. Every single Jew is to be killed. Every single Jew shall perish. And it's written down. And the king very foolishly gives his ring unto Haman and tells him, write what you will, sign it with the king's ring, for a sign with the king's ring, it says, is irreversible. You know all the king heard? The king never even heard the name Jew mentioned. Haman just says there's a people dispersed throughout the kingdom whose laws and customs are different than ours, and they're very dangerous people, and being the best interest of the king, if they all were killed, and the king agreed. <clears throat> Let's think about uh, another verse in the book of Proverbs. It says, Whosoever heareth a matter, whosoever answereth a matter before he heareth it is a fool, and shame and folly shall come unto him. Now that's a show you how up to date the Bible is. Anytime you hear something, it's real easy to form a conclusion almost immediately before you hear all the facts. <clears throat> you ever heard a, a lawyer in a court case? You know, the prosecuting attorney gives his uh, side of it at the end, his closing argument. And as soon as he gives his closing argument, he says, guilty, guilty, guilty. And then if his lawyer gives the closing argument, you say, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Because they both can be very persuasive, and you got to hear them both. You got to balance it all out. You got to weigh all the evidence. When some witnesses start coming forth and give their testimony, if you're not careful as a juror, you'll already start making up your mind. But you got to hear them all. You got to hear the, you know, the sum total of everything, and that's the way it is in life. You never make your mind about a matter till you hear the entirety of it. Sometimes people will talk to me wanting to get counsel about a certain situation, and here's what I tell them. All I can do is answer you based upon what you've told me, but I need to hear the other side. I've never encountered a situation yet in marriage, counseling, anything else, there wasn't more than one side. There's one, that side, that side, and usually there's the right side. And it's usually a blend or a balance, usually in situations like that. Here the king answered him out before he hears. He didn't investigate it. He didn't verify everything Haman's saying. And he gives permission. Now, remember the king of the Medes and Persians, their law was irreversible. Once it's signed, it's signed. And now Haman has an official, uh, the official support of the king. The law now says on the 13th day, the day, month of Adar, the 12th month, all the Jews, it's going to be legal for all the Jews to be slain and they shall all perish. And on top of that, he tells the king, I'll put 10,000 talents of silver in the king's treasury. It was estimated that day that the annual, the annual revenue in the Persian Empire that day was 15,000. He's offered to put two-thirds of that into the king's treasure, which tells me he was an extremely wealthy man. He was extremely wealthy in terms of the goods of this world, in terms of the silver, but he was also 
very rich in pride, wasn't he? And ego and ambition and everything else. The king agrees. The decree goes out. Esther knows nothing about it. Mordecai knows all about it. Remember, he's an official. He's there at the gate. He's most likely a judge. He not only hears about it, but he's got a copy of the decree. And when he hears it, he reads that decree, the Bible says that he went around, you know, ripped his clothes off, tore his clothes, rent his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, which is what people did when they got tragic news or when they uh, repented. That was a typical thing for a Jewish person to do. And he began to go in and out of the street, the city there, but all the streets, and he, was, he could hear his voice as he wailed out loud due to his anguish at this decree. It's a decree of death. Remember, it's a decree of death. Then just a decree to go round up all the Jewish people and take them into prison. This is a decree of death. On the 13th day of the month Adar, it's going to be legal for the people to go and to slay every single Jew in the kingdom. Every single Jew, a decree of death. Mordecai understands this. Esther knows nothing about it. Mordecai is distressed. But the news finds its way to the ears of the queen that her uncle, her, or her cousin rather, her, uh, what basically was her own father from the standpoint of tra training her up, she had great confidence in and loved dearly, had great respect for her, was out in the street in sackcloth and ashes. What in the world can this be? So she gets a man by the name of Hatak to go and find out. And he goes from the queen down to Mordecai to inquire. Mordecai tells him everything that's been going on, tells him to go back and tell the queen, take a, a copy of this decree and show the queen and tell the queen what's going on. And he requested that she would go before the king and make intercession for the Jewish people. Now, here's a man. Generally speaking, you say, you know what book the book, uh, the the name Hatak is in, I doubt most anybody would know it. Remember he guy a while ago who was in charge of all the women who uh, God brought uh, Esther into favor with? Now he has Hatak. Reminds me of a story or an event that took place in Acts chapter 23 in the life of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a prisoner. And over 40-some Jews conspired to take his life, and they have bound themselves to an oath that they will not eat nor drink till they have taken the life of the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul's got a nephew. His sister's son overhears it. He goes and sees Paul and tells Paul about it. Paul calls for the centurion, tells the centurion about it, says, take this man, he's got a story to tell, he's got some news, you need to take it uh, to the, 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 the officer in charge and tell him all about it. And so he does what Paul asked him to do. He takes his nephew, takes him there to the man in charge. He hears the story, he believes the story. He then instructs his men. There was to be uh, 200, he had two centurions take 200 men and 70 horsemen. And there was a, a third a party involved in that, so many people, and they were to take beast with them, and they would go to where Paul was at, and they were to take him out of there, put him on that beast, and bring him to Felix, where he could tell the story. What if Paul's nephew had not heard that? Paul most likely would have died. They probably would have carried out their conspiracy. They probably would have killed the man. So here's a man, Paul's nephew, you don't even know his name. But God put him in the greatest book that's ever been written in Acts chapter 23. We find here a man by the name of Hatak is going to be the bearer, or bearer of the messages between Esther and Mordecai. No uh, text messages here. No emails here. No telephone calls here. No. Esther tells him, he tells Mordecai, Mordecai tells him, he tells Esther, it goes back and forth. But Esther's got a problem, and she sends this message back to Mordecai. She says, it's unlawful for anybody to approach the king unless they're called for. Unless they're called for. If you approach the king uncalled for, it can mean that your life will perish, your life will be taken. And she says, I have not been called in the last 30 days. Mordecai replies back to her, 
He says, think not just because you're in the palace that your life will be spared. It will become known, in other words, that you are a Jew, and according to what the king has signed, your life will perish just like anybody else's will. And if you refuse to intercede on our behalf, let it be known that deliverance shall come from another place. Now, why in the world would Mordecai believe that? Because of a verse I've already mentioned back here in the book of Genesis chapter 12, when God makes a promise that Abraham through him and his seed shall all the nations of this earth be blessed. And more promise he made to Abraham a little bit later on that give clarification even unto that. In other words, uh, through the seed of Abraham, you're going to find the Lord Jesus Christ coming in this world. If the Jewish people are annihilated, that cannot happen. Mordecai believes that. He's familiar with that. Here's where biblical information comes in handy. Here's where biblical information is so important to God's people in this present day. The more you understand of the teachings of God's word, my friends, the less frightened you'll be here in this world. Just for example, the Lord tells Noah in the 8th chapter in the book of Genesis, he says, as long as the earth remaineth, there should be, there should be uh, uh, cold and uh, uh, there should be uh, summer and winter. There should be seed time and harvest. There should be, um, you know, summer and winter, etc. What's that telling me? That's telling me I don't have to lose sleep because of global warming. That's what it tells me. I don't doubt some of the things they say are not true, but I can tell you this. As long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. And there will be summer and winter. You will have seasons, because God said it would be. That little bit of biblical information helps me when I hear all these crazy claims. Having biblical information and biblical knowledge will fortify you and strengthen you and you know what to believe and what not to believe. Mordecai knows this information. Esther knows this information. So the question comes in, who, who knoweth whether you come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Throughout history, God's always raised up people at the right time. There was a Moses, there was a David, there was John the Baptist. Many more can be mentioned. There was a Daniel. The right person at the right time. Is Esther in the right place at the right time? Is Mordecai in the right place at the right time? Here are two Jewish people, and the lives of about 10 million Jewish people rest upon their shoulders, rest upon their actions. And Esther tells Mordecai, she says, have all the Jews in Shushan, that's the palace here of the Persian Empire, have them all fast for three days and three nights, and I and my maids will do the same. We will not eat nor drink for three days and three nights. She said, then I'll go into the king, and if I perish, I perish. Here we have, I think, one of the most courageous acts you'll find about anybody in the entire Bible. You know, fasting is wonderful. Prayer is wonderful. Fasting gives you the discipline to structure your life. It's a kind of preparation for prayer as it's taught in the Word of God. But then you've got to have somebody that actually takes a step. You've got to have somebody that actually takes action. That's why James tells us that prayer, I mean, excuse me, faith without works is dead. He says, show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. So she's going to take action. She's going to lay her life down if necessary. If I perish, I perish. So she goes forth and she approaches. The time is crucial, isn't it? The time is crucial. Will the king hold out the golden scepter? If he does not, it's all over with. If he does, there's hope. He held out the golden scepter. Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns as the rivers of water, whithersoever he desireth. Here's this verse, is played out right before us here. This king had no idea in the world that he's a pawn in the hand of God, you might say. And so he asked Esther what she wanted. She said, I'd like for you and Haman to come to a banquet tomorrow. The king agrees. You might say, why didn't Esther tell the king right now, what she wanted because she's waiting for, the, waiting for the right place at the right time to bring the message. And I think that's always important. The right place, the right time, the right message. You find that played out over and over again in God's word. She says nothing. She says, I want you to come to this banquet. 
So when Haman hears about it, you, oh, you're talking about somebody floating on, in, in midair. I mean, it just lifted his ego right on up. Oh, now uh, I'm going to go right in there with the king himself to the banquet of the queen. When they get in there, they enjoy the banquet. And then the king asked Esther, what will you have? Uh, what's your request? He said, I want you to come to another banquet. The second banquet. Now, this is a test of faith. You know, the king is not used to people telling him what to do. The king could have had a heavy schedule the next day. Sure he could have. He could have just said, well, I ain't got time to come tomorrow. Whatever your request is, let's hear it right now. But he didn't say that, did he? You see the hand of God's providence working in all this? That's what he could have said, but he didn't say. He could have not held, held the golden scepter out, but he did. He could have said, I ain't got time for all this foolishness. You got a request, just make it known. I'll come another time and I'm booked up for tomorrow. But he didn't say that. So they come the second time. Request is made. Now here, here we left that first. Actually, here's where Haman went back and got his family all together and told about his promotion, his advancement, uh, the glory of his riches and all of his children and one thing and another. The word I, 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 I. He had the eye disease. When people get the eye disease, that's... that's <clears throat> That's usually a bad disease. And by the way, disease of pride is a bad disease. You know, when somebody has pride, everybody around that person is sick except the person's got the pride. Everybody else is sick. Nobody else likes to see it. Everybody else is sick except the person who's actually got it. So he comes a second time. As he comes, he's coming with the full intent to ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai on a gallows because when he tells his wife and them of all these things, his wife comes up with this wonderful plan. Well, we'll just have a gallows built and we'll take care of Mordecai. You won't have to worry about him not bound to you anymore. We'll just build these gallows. We find Haman coming to the second one, but before he gets there, something happened back at the end of chapter 2 that's extremely important. Back in the last part of chapter 2, you're going to find where Mordecai overheard a plan. Where there was two men that was very close to the king who had conspired and had a plan. They were going to assassinate the king. And you find where Mordecai reveals that. And these two men then are hanged immediately. And a record was made of it in the Chronicles, but Mordecai was never rewarded for it. There's a reason for that. We're five years down the road, by the way. Five years down the road. Mordecai, or Haman has plans to hang Mordecai. He's coming in there. But before he gets there, you're going to find where Esther tells the king about Mordecai. The very man he's coming to ask permission to hang is the very man that the king is wanting to honor. Now, why is he wanting to honor that? By the way, the king didn't sleep the night before. You find where God used the king's, um, you know, drunkenness for one, for one thing. He used his loneliness for another. Now he's going to use his sleeplessness for another. And the king could have had any kind of thing brought before him to help him go to sleep. All the entertainment that was available that day was at his at his fingertips, what did he choose? Of all things that he chose, bring me the chronicles. Bring me the chronicles. That'd put anybody to sleep, that's for sure. That reminds me so much of Brother Oscar Sullivan. I will never forget him coming through the handshake one day. He said, Brother Lawrence, he says, you know, I just want to let you know, whenever I have a hard time going to sleep, I just put them on your CDs. And he says, that just, that just soothes me and comforts me. And first thing you know, I'm just drifted off in another another land. Let me tell you something about this. All the chronicles were on the shelf. Why did he pick this chronicle? Been five years since it was recorded. Why did he pick this one? Because the hand of the Lord's in the matter. He picks the chronicle that five years ago was recorded in it how that Mordecai discovered this plot by these two men. And when the king hears this, he asked a question. What did he receive? They said, nothing. Had he received a reward five years before, this wouldn't even be a question. So he's pondering, what shall I do? At that time, they said, well, Haman's in the court. He said, bring him in. As he comes in, the king asked him a question. He said, what shall I do to honor the man the king so desires the honor? 
And Haman, feeling in his heart, surely he's talking about me. He said, well, I would put him on the king's horse and i put the king's crown on his head and the king's apparel and then i get some man just lead him down the street. And the king thinks that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Haman has come to ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows and now the king's going to tell Haman he's to get Mordecai out, put him on his horse, put his crown on his head, his apparel on him and for him to lead him right down the street. Haman did that and went home with great shame with his head covered. His head covered. Pride goeth before fall and a haughty spirit before those who are lifted up in pride. When he goes back home, he tells his wife and them about it. This time his wife doesn't have such good news. Remember the time before, she said, oh, we'll just build a gallows. We'll take care of Mordecai. But now, she said, well, if you've already begun to fall before this man, says, why, well, uh, you're doomed. <laughs> you're doomed. <laughs> oh, the encouragement. Oh, what great encouragement. Haman now has got to go to that second banquet. When he comes to that second banquet... It's revealed to the king now that Haman and Mordecai and Esther are both Jews. And the king has asked her what her request is. She said, oh, my people might be spared. He said, because there's been a decree sent out to slay all my, um, all my people by a certain person. Said, well, who is that? Then she says, why is that wicked Haman right there? The king was known for being, having temper tantrums. He was known for having a short fuse and a great temper Oh, his temper must have been volcanic at this time. He is so enraged, he gets up and walks outside. What does this mean? It means he signed a decree to kill the very man that saved his life five years before and signed a decree to slay his own wife, the queen of Persia. He didn't even know it. He was foolish in promoting Haman to begin with. He had this wicked man right next to him. All this had to be very embarrassing to the king. And when the king comes back in, Haman knows his only chance now is to obtain mercy from the queen. And so they're, they're actually in, in the bedchamber. He falls down upon the bed to beg mercy. But when the king comes back in, he interprets that as Haman trying to force himself upon his wife, the queen. And there were those that were around him that said to the king, Haman had some gallows built for Mordecai. King says, take him and hang him. Take him and hang him. Haman will die. He will hang on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai. This answers the question. Esther, who knoweth that thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now notice that wasn't a statement. He didn't say you ought to know don't you know you come to the kingdom such a time as this? He says, who knows? Well, you come to the time of the kingdom such as this. There are certain things I know, certain things that are certain, certain things I don't know. I know with certainty there's coming a last day. I know with certainty the Lord Jesus Christ is going to descend from heaven. I know with certainty there's going to be a resurrection. I know with certainty... Then my body one day will be conformed to the blessed image of the Lord and Jesus Christ. I know with certainty the Lord will gather all his people home and take them into heaven some sweet day, sometime down the road, not as far away as it has been. I know that for certainty. I know there will be a general resurrection. I know the righteous shall inherit heaven, my friends, and have eternal happiness. I know the wicked shall be cast into a burning hell that's just as eternal as the happiness for the Lord's children. I know that. What I don't know that's what's going to happen between now and the time I depart this world. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, I don't know the future, but I know who holds the future. Well, I know some things about the future. Yeah, he holds the future. I know some things about the future. I just don't know them all. But I do know that God has promised not to leave me nor forsake me. I do know that God has promised to direct my footsteps if I trust him with all my heart, lean not my own understanding. I know that. I know with certainty. I know that. Was Esther in the right place at the right time? Indeed she was. 
Was she there by chance or accident? No, she wasn't. Was she there due to the providence of God and God bringing people, uh, bringing her into favor of different ones all along the way to get her up there? Surely she reviewed her history. She would have to say, yes, I believe I'm here at the right time. I believe I'm here in the kingdom of such a time as this. Because she had the courage. You know, all along we knew she was young, we knew she was beautiful, but now we know she's a woman of faith and a woman of courage and a woman of strength. She was in the right place at the right time. She made intercession. I'd encourage all of you, if I'd have known I was speaking on Esther last Sunday, I'd encourage you to read the book of Esther during the week, but I didn't know that. But I do know I spoke on it today, so I'm going to encourage you before you go to bed tonight, just read the book of Esther. I just got through the first five chapters, ten chapters. You will read where Mordecai, but let me just say this in closing. Saul was a Benjamite, the king of Israel was a Benjamite who didn't do what God told him to do, and he lost his crown. Mordecai was also a Benjamite who did what God instructed and guided him to do, and he ended up wearing a crown. Saul did not defeat the Amalekites. We find that Mordecai defeated Haman, a descendant of the Amalekites. God in his wonderful providence had the right person in the right place at the right time in order to deliver his people from a death decree. When God told Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he could eat every tree in the garden except one. It's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, In the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. A death decree. A death decree. How are we going to be delivered from the death decree? Through a man named Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from so great a death. He's done what we could not do. He's crossed our T's and dotted our I's and lived the life we could not live. And he made a perfect offering and sacrifice to the Father. Because we were all by nature, the children of wrath, even as others, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death, but to get to God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, I'm telling you, we've been saved from the decree of death through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he hung upon that cross and made his soul an offering for sin unto the Father on behalf of the elect of God. Was the Lord Jesus Christ in the right place at the right time for this reason, this purpose? Indeed he was.